Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. My guest today is Ollie Phillips. Ollie is a director at PwC and founder of Optimist Performance, where he delivers team building, leadership and personal development training. You may also know Ollie as a former England rugby captain. He's a four times world record holder and has raised over £2.5 million for charity. Welcome, Ollie. Really excited to have you here today uh, to talk about your story. We've talked a little bit beforehand and it sounds absolutely fascinating. So I'm really excited that you're here. Thanks, Manadi. Delighted myself. I was more relieved that you didn't fall asleep when obviously I recounted my story. So <laughs> hopefully we have more of the same um, with some of the listeners on this one. <laughs> Brilliant. Yes. No, no falling asleep allowed. So, Ollie, um, let's start with... Uh, you telling us just a little bit about yourself, what you do, who you are, and then uh, we'll go back to back to the beginning. Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name's Ollie Phillips. My, I, well, my proudest thing right now, I'm a dad, which is the, the critical bits. Um, dad of three children, husband to an incredible wife um, or, or lady even, um, uh, called Lucy. Uh, we've got three kids, Alfie, and Nia and Lily May, um, and prof- that's my personal side. Professionally, uh, I am a director at PricewaterhouseCooper. I am the founder of a behavioral change business called Optimist Performance, uh, and I have a property development business with my wife called SPOD Properties. So that's me in a sort of professional capacity. I've just finished a stint as the head of performance for Team China. Um, having been based out in China during COVID, which is always interesting, um, and now back in the bosom of the UK, which has got its own chaos. There you go. (laughs) Different kind of chaos. Yeah, a different kind of chaos. You sound like a very busy man, so I'm very pleased that you managed to find some time to talk to me. That's great. It's really nice to be here. Fun. Brilliant. So let's uh, leap right back to the beginning for you. As uh, as everybody does, we're talking about people and places and experiences that have had an impact on you and who you are. Um, so let's start with little Ollie, your family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so when, when we had our little warm up chat around this, I think I just turned 40 in uh, in September, even though I look about 60. I mean, my nickname was Benjamin Button when I was playing. So um, <laughs> I'm hoping I look like Brad Pitt soon, but I'm running out of run, runway at the moment. Um, but yeah, I, I, it prompted a bit of a reflection. And if I'm honest, my life feels like it has been crystallized into into decade stints, ironically. Um, and so, the, you know, the first 10 years of my life was, was a very happy one, if I'm honest. Um, younger brother uh, living in Brighton, seaside town and... Yeah, grew up with a, a fairly happy and and settled sort of family unit, if you like, mum, with my mum and dad sort of being married to each other. My dad was very successful, so we had a pretty nice life and 
lived in a nice house and all that sort of jazz. So my first 10 years were filled with love, color, fun, um, a bit of, you know, I, I mean, a lot of sport. But but I, if I were to reflect on those first 10 years of my life, there were definitely a, um, you know, a settled period, if you like. Hmm. And does sport run in the family? You said a lot of sport. Um, an active family, but nothing in terms of sort of professional level. My dad was a very good marathon runner, to be fair to him. He, he you know, he ran a sub three hour marathon. So he was a relatively sort of fit, fit bloke. Um, but but I think that also demonstrates or comes across probably in some of the later bits we'll, we'll, I'll probably talk about. But, you know, I, I think that stems from him being a bit of an obsessive character. So as a result of that, you know, if he was going to, you know, if he was set on running three hours, he's going to run sub three hours. Um, so, you know, but, but equally, you know, loved his sport, loved his rugby. And for me and my brother, particularly, I think rugby at the age of four or five became an outlet that my mum could basically farm me out. And instead of me bashing the living daylights out of my brother, my younger brother, you know, somebody else could do it to me. Um, and I could get rid of some of that boisterous energy that I needed just to sort of wear, wear off every weekend. And I was hopeless at football, two left feet. So, and I, they always put me in goal. So that was always an indication that I wasn't going to be any good at playing <laughs> football. So thankfully I could play rugby. And if you like my love for team sports, teamship, being in an environment with lots of people surrounded by activity, fun, and obviously at the root of that rugby. And that started very early for me. That was from the age of four. That's very young to start playing rugby. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I say rugby. It's obviously you know touch and tag and you know, basically give the ball to one person that everyone r runs around them like bees around a honeypot. So, you know, not rugby as as everyone knows it, but um, but just definitely an outlet, if you like, for activity and mm -hmm. a place where I could get um, a lot of energy out of my system, but also start to understand the pros and cons of competition, the benefits that come from being diligent and focused and trying hard and and then also the, the great thing that comes with teams and winning as a collective I, I definitely really really started to enjoy those moments you know I would be that kid that would be absolutely devastated and distraught if we lost and and over the moon like fist pumping and high-fiving as if I've just you know won the world cup having won whatever Hove mini rugby under sevens tournament or something. You know. <laughs> but very passionate about the team and winning and being competitive. Okay. Are you a nightmare to play board games with? Yes. Yeah, I am. I mean, I love it, but I am a nightmare. My wife always, actually, my wife says this all the time because I always win. Um, and I don't know, it's, I mean, I don't know why that happens, if I'm honest, but but I am very competitive at it. So if we play Monopoly and things like that, you know, we've had instances where my mum will flip the Monopoly board over because I've charged her too much rent or something like that on a. So we try to avoid that in the household. But um, yeah, I, I've definitely mellowed in as I've got older. I, I have, as we go through this this chat, if you like the decade stints, I would notice a, a marked difference in my, if you like, my last decade compared to probably the middle two for me in terms of my competitive nature and my appetite to to win so let's move to your next decade then so is it 10 years old things changed quite a bit for you do you want to talk a bit about that yeah i mean i think 
hopefully not everybody who listens to this, but a lot of people who have been through a, a you know, a separated, divorced family or whatever else will will resonate with this. But my, mine came at the age of 10, 11 years of age for me. So I, I would say that's probably one of the most challenging ages. Not, I mean, there isn't ever a, a great age for that to happen, but where I think at the age of 10, 11, you understand what's happening in terms of a practical sense like dad's not here anymore you don't really understand why and you can't and you can't really be told the reasons why um and so all you get really is a lot of confusion a lot of frustration a lot of anger to towards people right toward you know and resentment towards my mum you know I, I i blamed her a lot for making my dad leave and all the rest of it and the reality is you know my dad was you know not a good good person in terms of fidelity and whatever else in, in the relationship so um you know so so i think those if you like the first five years 10 to 15 it's were very very troubling for me um unsettling for me around mm. just not really understanding why this perfect bubble that i'd grown up in for sort of 10 years had suddenly been burst and then and here i was missing if you like the the person that i kind of idolized and grown up with and you know it wasn't there anymore and, he, and it wasn't just he wasn't there we didn't see him for like two years even though he was living a mile down the road you know, so so like a very sort of challenging time it's coupled with then obviously mm. you know my mum and dad separating and my mum meeting new people and you know i remember she had she had a, a boyfriend of hers really good guys when we still sort of chat with now but i know he used to play a game called wall ball you know where you kick a ball against the wall and there was a target and i was absolutely obsessed with this game loved it but because he was my he was like an intruder or whatever i refused to talk to him so i think it was probably two years not far off like and when i say refused like i mean i wouldn't say a word to him i wouldn't even acknowledge he was there and um and but i would ask my brother because i love this game so much i'd be like addy can you ask um paul if we could play wall ball because you know so like that sort of whatever you want to call it torment in my mind as to how i how i met how i met meddle through this and manage through this sort of challenging period for me of like ah oh, yeah there's a replacement for my dad or whatever else which obviously you know it wasn't but but you know, a, a very confusing time, and when you mm. and I understand why now with you know how old I am, you couldn't really be told about the things that had happened because they're not very nice, um, and so you just have to sort of accept you know dad's not going to be around anymore, and you know la 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 la. So I mm. I found that period, in a personal perspective, very unsettling, and what materialised in that, if you like, in the first that was that 10 years but the first five years were particularly troubling and rugby then became a very very significant factor in my life because what I'd lost in terms of support validation love recognition praise and whatever else in terms of being a father figure I'd gained through sport and in particular through rugby and that wasn't just rugby but I mean I I was very sporty so I remember it at the age of 14, 15, I was playing county squash, rugby, athletics, cricket. I was playing divisional and national hockey, rugby. I was running 
southeast england i, I was i was national water polo i mean i was literally the energizer bunny i mean every hour that i had spare i was doing sport did you have any time for school um you know what I, I, it was ironic i did and if anything if you like 14 to 16 or 17 were, were like the the bumper years for me where i don't know everything i seemed to touch returned to gold i mean i mean not not literally but you know, I, I would my at 14 you start to become county england under 16s all this sort of stuff so i'm in that sort of framework for rugby i'm captain for sussex our county so i've got lots of players dads school all telling me like i'm great and you're going to go far and you're going to be brilliant you're going to do this on a rugby front same on a hockey front same on a water polo front same on an athletics front so same on a cricket front selected for sussex under 19s and so everything is positive momentum in my GCSEs, I get two A stars, six A's, two B's. And then and then probably, well, not probably, definitely, at 16, 17, when you get into sixth form, I, I got a bit, I was, arrogance probably overdoing it. I was just overconfident and, and my focus got lost. So I focused on all the things that I just was super passionate about, sports, CCF, which is basically the military stuff, like being in the army. I got voted as... I got nominated as cadet of the country in whatever it was, whenever I was at school, 1999 or 2000 or whatever it was. So if you like being physical and being active became this big uh, avenue for me of support and also a big, you know, I call it a distraction. And then at the same time, at the age of 16, girls came into the world, which um, when you've got a face that only your mother can love, you know, you want to, you want to you want to leverage whatever you can in that situation and and so you know being the i don't know captain for rugby and playing for england and getting a contract at harlequins and da, da 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 you know you sort of revel in all that nonsense but what it meant was i neglected my studies i neglected my a levels and i was forecast an a a a b i think it was and i was going to go to the london school of economics to study economic history with economics I mean, I was going to be that boring, Melody, and trust me, or more boring. Uh, I got a BBD basically, so that was you know disaster days. Uh, you know, it's not that you know bad overall, but in terms of what the expectation was and what I delivered, was very very you know poor. And I think at that point at eighteen, I, somebody shone down on me and gave me a bit of luck because um, the, uh, London School of Economics said no, and I had to make a relatively big call because harlequins had offered me a, at the time a thirty-five thousand pound contract and that was ridiculous at 18 years of age and i just there's something in my gut that told me look if i go and do this if i go to university or if i go to something in london you know lse was in the strand and quinn's was in aldershot and economic history with economics having just got a d in economics there was no chance i was going to be going to the strand so I just thought, look, I need to, I need to go and do something here. And fortuitously, Durham were my originally my second choice on my UCAS or whatever, and they said we'll accept you on the course. So I went up to do a BA in business up at Durham University, having never been up there, never seen the university, nothing, and obviously been in I was in Brighton, so going five six hours up north 
but it was kind it was it turned out to be the best decision i ever made in my life if i'm honest but in terms of my friends group my growing up my maturity but um but yeah it, it was uh i went up there and you know the rest from that point on was history and so what happened with the rugby then? So you had, had been offered a contract at Harlequins. Was that to play full-time or would you have still gone to university at the same time? Yeah, I mean, conceptually it was to still go to university, but I can guarantee you there's not a chance I'd have gone from Aldershot to the Strand for one lecture on a Thursday afternoon or whatever it might be. So yes, hypothetically and theoretically, I would have gone and done the and done the two, but... I think that was the thing from a behavioural perspective. My A-level results made me realise I've got the balance of power here wrong, and I need. I've now, if you like, my GCSEs have done. I've gone well. My A-levels I've cocked up. I need to write this wrong, so that maybe in the long run, if you know, if I get injured or whatever else in rugby, there's something to fall back on, and I've got some job stabilities because I just figured like if I went to a job interview with a you know whatever eight a's it's eight a's and whenever it was two a stars at gcse a botched a levels but then a two one or a first from a big red brick university like an lse or a durham they could be like oh what was the anomaly in the middle whereas if i'd just gone gcse's cocked up my a levels and then nothing it, it would have been a much harder narrative so i i decided to go and flip the switch and luckily unfortunately Durham still had a very good you know, rugby program I decided to commit to the rugby at this point and I thought well I'll go up play I was getting in on the back of rugby as well that's what I you know they sort of said we'll overlook some of your results um, and yeah so, so I went up there to do that and make sure that I came away with you know minimum 2-1 a couple of questions come to mind. One is, why did you choose to focus on rugby? Because it sounds like you were good at lots of sports. So what was it about rugby that made you commit to that? Um, yeah, really good question, because I mean, I could have gone, I, th I think it was probably the level of professionalism. I could have gone into cricket. Um, I was Sussex under 19 cricketer and uh, there was definitely some momentum in that. But I, I guess I never really felt that I was really good at that you know, I felt like I was good at it and I was competitive I played for our first 11 cricket team from the age of 15 so I, I I knew that I could bowl and stuff but I didn't I never really properly understood the game and I wasn't passionate about it I'd see other players I was fortunate at my school we had like an England cricketer who ended up playing loads as a wicketkeeper a guy called Matt Pryor you know and, I, and he was in the team with me and I just remember I remember always looking at him going this kid lives and breathes this. I mean, there's nothing he would rather do than cricket. And if my passion was the total, if I were to look at myself, I was the total the other way, but with rugby. And and so I just, you know, at the time, I really enjoyed the game. I understood the game. I was very good at the game and got a lot of validation and self-worth out of the game. And I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie. I, I found... The, if you like the physical battle of going you know head to head and a bit of physical contact more appealing and more satisfying with a group of people than it was cricket and I felt that cricket was I, I, I see it now it's not quite the same it is, it is a very much a team game but I felt cricket was more an individual game like 
if I'm batting, it's on me and I've got to bat my way through. And if I'm bowling, it's on me and I've got to bowl exactly where I need to, to try and get this person out. Um, whereas rugby, I found it was, you know, there are, it's now there's similar parallels, but at the time that was just my reflection, I think. It sounds like you made some quite sensible, rational decisions at that point. Were there people in your life who were advising you on that? Or was it something you just went in a darkened room and thought about? Yeah, it was quite a lonely time, if I'm honest. So, um, yeah, so the outcome of my A-levels was obviously absolutely car crash. My dad going apoplectic at me. And this had also been preceded by probably six months to a year before my dad walking into the school and telling the headmaster that um, I'd had a school report that wasn't very good in my lower sixth year. So building into my final year. And my dad, who'd never shown any interest in my schooling at all, decided that this was the moment he was going to and stormed into the school. And then basically everything that I'd worked for for like five, six years at school, he tore up in about an hour with the headmaster. So, you know, I was desperate to be the first 15 rugby captain. I was desperate to be the head boy for the school. And he walked into the headmaster's office and said, he's not doing any of this stuff. And I remember being very disappointed in the headmaster because he agreed with them. And so I just walked in. They told me and I just, I used an expletive beginning with C, both of them, which I've never used in my life before or since. Um, and walked out. And then luckily there was an absolute legend of a Welsh guy who was our head of rugby at the time, a guy called John Pope. And Popey turned around to the headmaster and said, there's no way he's not being the captain or something. So he made me the, he said, I'm ignoring what you're saying and made me the captain of the rugby, but I, but I wasn't made the head boy, um, which, you know, now in hindsight is an irrelevance, right? <laughs> but, but at the time, it's obviously, you know, a, a, an earthquake happening in your life. And, and so I think if you like that, that decade of my life, um, was filled with lots of disruptive moments like that. Very unstable, um, irregular, emotive moments, if you like, that were often fueled, well, definitely fueled by my dad, but 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 our family environment. My mum was brilliant, and my mum, my brother, and I, we lived, you know, lived together. We call ourselves the Three Amigos, but um, but I still think, as a boy growing up, you know, you look to your your dad as as the sort of you know key figure or whatever else and particularly given the context that i'd had of the 10 years of him being the key figure and then for him to just go the total polar opposite you know to be very to be very absent to be very inconsistent to be very unsupportive not very loving um you know that was challenging and yeah, I mean, his medium, his way of demonstrating support or love was money. And yeah, you know, and that was, I am very grateful now, you know, him paying for my school fees, I'm very grateful for. But at the time, obviously, you don't, as a 15 year old, you don't think of it. I'm like, look, you know, I don't, I don't understand what this is. All I actually care about is whether you're nice to me or not, or whether you say, well done, or whether you come and watch my rugby games, or whether you come and congratulate me for getting man of the match or, being made captain for my county or winning my race or whatever it is, right? Being present, basically. And and that was just not the case. So so as a result, sport became the crutch 
sport became the avenue of like okay i, I didn't realize this at the time but but that became the okay i'm not i don't get this i don't get this feeling that i need or i'm used to having as a naught to 10 year old but wow this this world of sports gives me that gives me that self-confidence gives gives me that validation that i need so you had it when you were little and then that next 10 years sounds like you were really seeking that validation you got it from the sport because you weren't getting it from your dad yeah yeah i mean i think when you go through an uncertain time right you you look for things that help bring you stability and and certainty and comfort and whatever else and having been in a period of of great comfort and good stability as as a child going then into adolescence i i was surrounded by instability and uncertainty and irregular behavior and absenteeism and whatever else and as a result of that i i didn't know where to turn you know my mum tried to be brilliant and she was amazing but i still you know sometimes when people are overly supportive and overly interested in you you almost resent them because like i because you look at things like i know that's not very good so don't tell me it's very good yeah i know i'm not that's not very good i know i can do better um so you know so you know it wasn't her fault in the slightest but you know that was definitely a period those 10 years of you know let's call it roller coaster ride and as i particularly from 10 to 15 and then as i went through 15 to 20 if you like sport became this big focal point that i could now start to get a lot of certainty from um and as i say towards the end of it 17 18 that balance became you know imbalanced and i ne i neglected certain areas that um could and, and and are very influential on the on the future of your life now i still find i still find it crazy that as an 18 year old well, you, you know you don't know what you're doing if i'm honest you you can make decisions or mistakes that impact the rest of your life the like the, the rest of your life you know because you know now if i think of organizations i work at one pwc the 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 pool of talent is enormous and every, basically if you don't have two a's and a b or whatever if you're not a straight a student computer says no before you even get to actually what happened here you know what happened here why is why is that anomaly so you know, i find that crazy but it is a reality mm. it's come up so often on this podcast the the craziness of as expecting children to know what they want to do with their life and like you say making those important decisions i'm curious in that one of your decisions so you decided to focus on studying uh with with the side order of rugby at durham did you always know that you wanted to go into rugby as a career was that kind of the longer term aim at that point yeah i mean it was it was always a huge passion point but i think also it was underwritten by the fact that um you know there was doubt in my psyche i, th I think there's natural doubt anyway of and a realization a recognition that, you know this could all end tomorrow because that always gets said to you from an injury perspective um so that was where that would weigh on my mind for certain but i also think you know my dad's influence in that was heavy you know you know 
when at every stage of progression, you know, whether I got Sussex or England or he'd always be like, son, this is a hobby. Like, when are you going to get a proper job? When are you going to get a proper job? You know, all, all this sort of stuff. Or, or you know, he, he wouldn't ever come watch any games, but he would, he would be you know, the, my biggest critic of stuff. So you doubt yourself in terms of the ability to go forward you know, because an 18, 19, 20 year old, like, oh, I'm going to go and commit to playing rugby. But my dad thinks I'm crap and my dad thinks I should go get a job. You know, so so that was always in the, I would be lying if that wasn't in the back of my mind. But, and I mean this genuinely, Durham was the saving grace because I didn't know this at the time, but they combined the two like beautifully for me. It was, I don't think I could have found anywhere else, or I don't know, maybe Loughborough, but but that would probably have been outweighted in terms of sport, right? But where I could do what I did, I could get the academic rigor, development, if you like, rubber stamp qualification of very, very credible. I could get that. And at the same time, play university rugby to a very, very, very high standard that allowed me to be in a shop window for a team called Newcastle Falcons who were 20 minutes away. And they were a premiership team with Rob Andrew and Johnny Wilkinson in their team, right? So who was happened to be the best player in the world and arguably ever, right? So, yeah. So that for me, and it wasn't a script that I delivered, was intentional on, but was poetry in motion, right? It was absolutely perfect. And so you studied, you then went to Newcastle Falcons? I did, yeah. So I went, I was at Durham from whatever it was, 18, 19 through to 21, 22. And after my first year of being there, uh, I got asked to go. It's quite a good story. I actually invited myself to training. I didn't realise this in the end, but I got asked to go and train with our under 21s team at the end of my first year at Durham. And, um, they only had three games left and I got picked. A, a lad got injured in training. And so they said, oh, look, we haven't got a winger. Would you start on the wing? And I've started the first game, scored a hat-trick. So they couldn't drop me, really. So then I started the next game, scored a hat-trick. And so their final game was at home at Kingston Park. Um, so their, the, the final game was at Kingston Park in Newcastle. Um and Rob Andrew just happened to come watch, who was the first team head coach at the time, an end of 21 game. And I scored a hat-trick again. So I scored three in a row. And uh, Rob Andrew at the end of the game was like, who's that Who's that old Benjamin Button lookalike running around on the field? Just won a raffle. Um, let's get him into pre-season. And I, got in, I came into pre-season and the first game, you know, friendly or whatever, was away to Glasgow. And they... They started me for that game and I scored two. And from then on, I was in the squad. And from then on, I, you know, I played and I, you know, don't get me wrong. It was a very different experience. I think my contract was 660 pounds a month as opposed to 35 grand a year or something. Um, so very different sort of financial terms, but it was that it was the dream if I'm honest. It was the absolute truth. So you were studying and playing. Yeah, I was for for my 
at the same yeah, time? For, the, for about a year and a half, I was studying and playing at the same time. But I met some very key influential people in my life at that moment in time in 2021 that really shaped I, I went a bit off piece and we'll probably talk about that and towards the end of my twenties, early thirties, but they really shaped and showed me what values purpose are all about and living and breathing the right life, if you like the right life. And that was Wilco definitely in terms of role model and you know attitude, application, dedication to your trade, but you know, he he was too far, if I'm honest. He was obsessive, but you know, but but he was very he was very good for me, um, from a professional perspective. So these were were they were you playing with him with these kind of older players on the team that you were with there? Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were at Newcastle Falcons at that point in time, and then we had a fitness coach who was arguably, I mean, he became my surrogate father, really, but who passed away sadly a year ago, but um, his name was Steve Black. And I've never met a human being like him, if I'm honest, ever in my life. Just, uh, but, he, but he just told me a few things at the beginning of my career that was, made so much sense. But, but he always said, look, it's common sense, but it's never common practice. And, um, and he just said, look, you're going to meet loads of coaches in your life that tell you loads of different things about where you should get better and where you're rubbish at and every review you'll have it'll always be about all the negative things that you do right but you're here you're not here because of all the things that you do wrong right you've got into this team you've been selected you've been given a contract because of all the things that you do right and he said that's your x factor so every time ollie phillips gets the ball he beats three people and scores tries so if somebody turns around to you and says oh you're you know, your shoelaces are the wrong colour or or your hair looks a bit out, you know, you need to sort this out or you look a bit overweight or you need to get stronger or you need to get faster or you need to do this. Nod, wave, smile and move on. Because he said, I can guarantee you, if you go out every week and score three tries, they're not going to care what your hair looks like. They're not going to care how, how much you weigh or how much you bench press or anything like that, right? Now, he said... That doesn't mean you neglect all the things that help you improve. But he said, like, basically maximize your strengths, manage your weaknesses. That's what he said to me. And and it just stuck with me forever. And and then he also said, which is more of a mouthful, but he said, look, the opportunity of a lifetime only exists within the lifetime of the opportunity. So a bit of carpe diem of like, look, don't worry about tomorrow. He always used to say, yesterday's history, tomorrow's a mystery, but today's a present. That's why they call it a gift. It sounds like a man of great sayings. He was just, he was the most well-read philosophical human. He was our S&C, but he wasn't. He was, a, he was more than that. He was a life coach. What's S&C? Strength and conditioning coach. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. But I can't, anybody that has, if you interview anybody, and I mean this, anybody that's either met Steve Black or worked with Steve Black, he would have changed their life in some shape or form. Um, and he, he, so he was just the most positive influence, um, positive influence I've ever had in my life, really. And that, and that helped me a lot in those formative years of being a professional athlete, you know, 20 to 25.
It was almost the opposite messaging you were getting from your dad, it sounds like, as well. Yeah, complete opposite, which is why I, you know, I was so drawn to him and so, de you know, de dependent on him. I mean, I ended up living with his sons or living with his son. I, I mean, I would go around to Blackie's house every night, practically, and watch Jim Rohn or, um, you know, all these, you know, um, Seven Habits, Stephen Covey or whatever else. I'd watch all these things about your mindset and the philosophy that you have on life and Anthony Robbins and whatever else. And um, yeah, and he really, I remember I broke my leg and ankle in my first year and he, he, he took me in and I lived with him. Is why him and his wife looked after me for two and a half weeks, three weeks. So just an incredible human being, if I'm honest. And I, I owe a lot to him in terms of like that work ethic and focus that ultimately resulted in me becoming voted as the best player in the world in at the age of 26. So talk a little bit about that trajectory, I can't even say the word, trajectory that you went on. You went from playing, you know, whilst you were at university through to incredible success during your rugby career. Tell me a bit about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's incredible success. If I'm honest, it was very tumultuous because of you know, Newcastle was. I loved it as a region. I was very settled there, as I've said. Uh, uh, some of my favourite you know, memories of my life are up there. But as a team, we were pretty inconsistent when we didn't win a lot. We had some unbelievable, unbelievably talented players. Never I'm honest, if you if you looked at the team sheet that we had in our first five years. Then everybody left and they went to different clubs and all of them won international honours, leagues. So if we'd have managed to keep everybody together, it would have been incredible. Why do you think you had such a, you know, great individuals that didn't come together for the team then? I think it was just we were young. You know, we mm. all came through at the same period and anybody that knows their rugby or whatever, in my group of players that I came th through with were... Matt Tate, Toby Flood, Jeff Parling, Dave Wilson, Lee Dixon, uh, Phil Dowson. Yeah. All of those players played international rugby for England and or got a British and Irish Lion cap, right? So that that shows you the, the wealth of talent that came through at that period. But we, you know, we were 20, 21, 22. So we're still learning the ropes. And, you know, we, they just didn't. Uh, the chairman at the time was particularly negative and had a very, you know, choice view on how things should be done. And as a result, you know, for example, someone like Blackie was got rid of. That was a, you know, a, a massive error from their side. And then, and then everybody left. You know, we all left. And it, that, from my perspective, so myself, Johnny, Tom May, Jamie Noon, we all left in 2009 and all went to France. And why France? Um, I think, look, it's it, from from a per, it was a, I got headhunted or rec scouted, recruited, whatever, for at that point in time, what was probably one of the biggest clubs in Europe, a team called Stade Francais. It was an amazing opportunity for me to go and play for a side where we could be in contention to win stuff, where, you know, I could play and live in France. So from a life perspective, living in Paris, learning French, uh, but truth be told, the money was you know, mind-blowing compared to what you're getting in Newcastle. So every, everything about it was positive. And I think 
where things had got to with Newcastle at that point, I, I couldn't really see a different. Yeah, you know, I, I couldn't really see things changing. So, and how long were you in France for? Uh, three years. At the end, three years, and it was incredible. I mean, I, I got voted as the best overseas player, best best European player, top try scorer in the league. Um, yeah, it was it was a fabulous time. I loved it, and then living in embracing French culture, living in in Paris, it was just. I'll be honest, I'll be honest. It was absolutely sensational. To what made you come back? Uh, I got I got forced to come back. Really, I had a coach that um, just was a bit dishonest. If I'm really honest, an excellent coach. I badly injured my knee in November of 2011 and I could play on it, but I needed a lot of injections to keep playing. Um, and he sort of said, look, I really need you to play, you know, please keep playing. So I kept playing. I'd had four injections in my knee and I kept going on it. And by the end, it was sort of like, I really need to have an operation on this. This is, this is going to be problematical. But he'd been promising me from November, look, your contract's coming, contract's coming. And then I got to the March, April, and I was like, there's no contract here, mate. And then they offered me one, and it was you know, basically lower than what I was already on. And I suddenly realised, oh, shit, I've, I've, I'm in a lose-lose situation here. I either take less money at the team, which I ended up saying, look, I will take it. And by that point, then he turned around and said, no, we're not offering it to you anymore. Um, and uh, so I said, look, I either take less money, but equally, no other team is going to sign me on the back of like, okay, we're going to sign a player that has to have basically seven months out after a knee operation. So, um, so that was why I came back. I, I didn't really want to come back, if I'm honest. And then the other part, it was coupled with the fact that the head of head coach for England at the time was a guy called Martin Johnson. And I'd been voted as best European player that year and top try scorer in, in the top 14, which was the French league. And he'd said, look, if you want to be considered for England and England selection, you, you need to be playing in the UK now because, you know, we, we, it's becoming too political and problematical for us to pick players based in France. So I've decided to come back. I had my knee operation, come back to the UK, rehabilitate in the UK and then find a club. And I found a club in the January of 2012, which was Gloucester. And was that always on the radar, this desire to play for England? Was that something that you'd always wanted? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm stereotyping, I'm generalising, I don't know, but I think anybody that you know is into sport or whatever or is competitive, it's, a, it's an amazing... You, know, you you admire and herald these, and you idolise these sort of players. I remember growing up seeing like Will Carling, Rob Andrew running around playing for England, going my dad to Twickenham or whatever and be like, oh, I'd love to play for England. It'd be so good to play for England and sing the national anthem. And when it arrives, when the moment arrives, it's even better than you ever imagined. So, and then that becomes addictive and you want to be part of it. And I think, you know, I'm, you know, I'm very proud to be English, um, and and I and I really love the opportunity to represent my country and have a bit of nationalistic pride. And 
yeah so for me it was you know it's, and for most people well, definitely playing rugby I would say it might, it might not be for everybody but I'd say it's the pinnacle right to represent your country is the pinnacle in sport and um massive honor and to be captain of my country was even bigger so you know I think um I'm just grateful that I was afforded that opportunity and I had the talent and coaches that and players that enabled me to sort of do it really because loads of there I'll be honest there are loads more players and people that are more talented than me that played play the game played the game but didn't get there for whatever reason but I did which is great I'm interested in that. What do you think contributes to someone getting there and someone not? Um, look, I think there are the obvious ones, the obvious things of you know, hard work. An example, like I would say my brother as a rugby player in his te- late, in his mid-teens was more talented than I was as a rugby player in terms of what he could do with the ball and how he could run and move with it. He didn't have any work ethic. He didn't want to work hard. He'll tell you that now himself. So, you know, him and me playing a game of tag or it or whatever, he'd probably always get away from me once, but I'd keep running and I'd keep going and I'd keep running until he basically gave up and then I'd catch him. But at the beginning, there's no way he'd evade me. There's no way I'd get anywhere near him. So, you know, I think there's, I've seen loads of, talented players never make it just because they they don't want to put the hard work in and that's not like that's not me criticizing them by the way because that's just a decision that's like i fully respect if they don't want to but i think if you if you properly commit to it and you just refuse to refuse the the answer of no then yeah obviously you need a certain level of talent right but if you if you just refuse to ever give in more often than not, great things will happen in person, perseverance. You said earlier about your dad that he has a an obsessive side to his character. You talked about his marathon running. Do you think you've got an element of that as well, of not giving up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there are so many similarities between myself and my father that I see, right? And some of them are incredible. So. Some of them are, 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 are really great attributes. Um, and some of them I developed that were not so great attributes in my late 20s, early 30s. That, uh, and fortunately, if you like, because I'd seen the damage that they could do on a like an infant level, child level in my in my childhood, and then also being cognizant and aware of that in my adulthood life, I was able to change them. I mean, it wasn't an easy change, to, but I was able to to arrest that rot. Because otherwise, I can get, I guarantee I, I'd be the same person. Same person. So you you said there, and you talked about this previously when we were talking. You, you know, it kind of tipped maybe the wrong way in your late twenties. Um, in terms of maybe more hedonistic. Uh, lifestyle. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think so. In my my twenties to twenty five, I was just driven. I would 
be obsessive about what I ate, how often I slept, what I drank, nothing I would be uncompromising with anyone or anything would get in the way of me and my career. Let's call it that, right? And the result was I became the best player in the world. Right. And I signed for the biggest club in the world. And then and then I think I basically rode that wave for two or three years of you know, you, you put in very solid foundations. You can kind of live on those for a bit, but I didn't improve them. I did. I definitely would say when I was at Stade Francais in Paris, my work ethic wasn't bad, but it was nowhere near as intense or as dedicated or as focused as it was when I was at um, Newcastle. You know, when I was at Stad, I'd be up for going out. I'd go and see the city more. I'd, I'd drink off the games. I'd, you know, I'd, I'd fraternise. Well, I'd be out till four in the morning. I'd never do that in Newcastle. Or you know, once in a blue moon. Whereas at you know at Stad, I would do it almost every weekend because that was the culture. And and because I was still being successful and because I was scoring and whatever else, I, I you know I was earning I was earning decent money. I, you know, but all of this was the if you like some new foundations that were being sown or, or built upon that were not going to be very conducive to later life because I was starting to if you like revel and get interested and addicted uh to the let's call it the negative side of professional sport the money the women the the attention the fans the all this sort of stuff you know the celebrity of it all if you like mm-hmm. and then left stad went to gloucester still sort of riding the wave then got injured and at 29 it was all over got injured and done and I remember still wanting to I still sort of craving this you have to if I explain it like sport was my avenue for everything everything every form of social interaction I had every form of validation every form of praise reward recognition everything and then it was gone and I couldn't execute at all anymore and so now I was in a new world where I was having to sort of, if you like, develop a new skill, um, but had no credibility or no background in it whatsoever. And equally no idea about what that new skill was going to be. Patricia, is there any support for that transition? You know, you go from, you know, being a famous rugby player, you know, everything around you, and then all of a sudden you're not. There's nothing there to support you. No. There was nothing. No, I mean they're they're getting better now, but there's still relatively nothing. And 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 I'll be honest. I mean I have a bit of sympathy for them because it's. I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, what can you do? You know, when you've. I don't know. When you've. How do I say? When you've driven a Ferrari, it's very difficult to turn around and say, "Oh, well, like it's okay." Like you know, life you can still go from A to B and. But here's your Skoda or whatever. That's not a discredit to a Skoda. I just don't know what other car to say, right? So, you know, I, I just think it's it's very difficult. You know, there, there were there were lectures and seminars around, like you know, preparing for life after rugby. But, but I mean, a you think you're invincible, and b you don't really want to consider that option. And c, yeah, it's just it's just not a very desired conversation. But when it happens, the fall from grace is big big and actually that's the one like negative side of that environment 
and I think it's also the players do it themselves. Like you deliberately ostracize yourself from that, let's call it family or that circle because you feel like a fraud. You know, you, you were originally, you know, give me the ball. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll be able to, you know, I'll score tries. I'll do whatever else. Now you can't deliver your specialism, but you're still trying to sort of be in the mixer and be one of the lads and whatever else. And you're not, you're not, you know I mean, you're not, you know, you're outside the, the circle of trust now, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so instead of sort of being kept in it, some, some teams and whatever are, are good at that, but you, you as an individual as well, you're a, your own worst enemy. You deliberately ostracize yourself from that. Of like, right. Well, I'm going to go smash it somewhere else. Do you question who you are? Because your identity has been so tied up with the sport for so long. For four years, five years, actually longer. Of, I mean, even to this day, sometimes it happens. I still introduce myself. I would introduce myself as, hi, I'm Ollie. I used to play rugby. Oh, who'd you play for? I played for Stade Francais, England. Like, oh, I've, I've seen you play. Blah, blah. Oh, yeah, great, great, great. So it was everything like that, who I was before. Not like, oh, I'm a director at PwC now and I've, I'm doing this and this and this. Because your perception... And probably the reality, right, is that's more boring because the perception is loads of people can go work for PwC or whatever else to get a job. But fuck, it'd be cool to play for England. Jesus, like, how do you do that? So that's what you lead with. And that's because you want praise, recognition, people to think you're a legend and whatever else. You lead with that because you think it's going to give you the emotional gratification that you're seeking. Um And so that was me. That was me from the age of 29 to probably mid you know, 33, 34, that was how I led everything. And a lot of my decisions were driven by that. And if you like, I, I needed that praise, recognition, reward, love, attention, affection, because that was, if you like, that's what had been absent for me 10 to 20, but had been present for me from 20 to let's say 30 and I've become so dependent on it. And when it had gone, I, I needed it. I, ne- I I was so isolated and lost without it that I just desperately needed it. And I couldn't figure out, I wasn't mature enough to, and I was too driven by my own ego at that point to appreciate that I needed to do some self-reflection and I needed to, to change some things. And so my answer to that was, I, I thank, well, Thankfully, I don't know, but I wasn't into booze. I wasn't into drugs. So that is a a big blessing, right? Because my world could really spiral. But I was into women, right? I, I needed the, the emotional gratification, chemistry, praise, love, affection that came from a relationship with a, someone from the opposite sex. But for me, it was from the opposite sex, but from a partner. So... And I would be so ridiculously extreme in order to get that. Because obviously, I, I've never done a drug, but I can imagine what it's like being a drug addict, right? The first time you do it and you go for a drink and you go for dinner and at the end of the night, you end up sleeping together and it's this amazing, passionate event and and then they fall in love with you and whatever else. Great, well, that worked now, but I need to, I need more than that now. I need more than that. I need more than that now. I need more than that now. You want the fix again. So I would do, you know, it got to a point where it was utterly ridiculous. I remember taking taking someone to the Bahamas on our second date. You know, in, 
just because I was going there on holiday anyway. And I was like, hey, you come with me. And you know, so from there, you know, I was incredibly selfish of me. Right. And I'm not proud of it, but I, at least I can reflect on it. And you know, from their perspective, they're like, wow, this, this bloke's amazing. Like, what, what is this? Like, this is fucking wow. So it would be like, I don't know, within five, six weeks, it would be just so, so intense and so passionate and the chemistry be so strong but i was already on the way down and they were like oh you know i've met this incredible bloke and it's amazing and we you know we see each other every day and but you know the reality was that there were there were others and i was effectively i was setting myself up for a complete failure because i was never actually reflecting on myself my own behaviors and my own you know needs and whatever else and and I was just fueling the problem. And what caused you to reflect? Because it sounds very much like you have done that. Yeah, I'm, I um, there's a few things that happened. So I was set, when uh, I, when I got injured, I went and did a load of ridiculous adventures. And one of them, the very first one I ever did was I went and sailed around the world. And when I came back from that, I had a massive bust up with my dad, enormous, and literally the day after of coming back of being i was away for a year we had a huge bust up and we didn't speak for three years so or just under two and a half so that was one moment if you like that's uh you know if you like set the wheels in motion and it culminated i had an incredible um partner girlfriend at the time who who had got pregnant and uh had unfortunately lost the baby on the 12-week scan and whilst it sounds horrendous, I'm I'm grateful for her because I wouldn't have been the person that she would have wanted me to be and needed me to be. And equally, I would have wanted to be as a, as a dad and I would have cocked everything up. But it still was and is a horrendous thing for her and us to go through at that period of time. And my reaction to that was to be incredibly selfish and egotistical because I was driven by my needs of like, I need to feel loved, affect, you know, affection, cared for. And here's my girlfriend who's sort of wallowing in self-pity. I mean, incredibly selfish and egotistical of me, right? But I'm just telling you the honest truth. And my re reaction to that was, let's get back into this. Let's get back on with it. And obviously she was like, I want to grieve. Like, oh, oh, this is shit for me. And I was like, no, 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 come on, come on, come on. What, what's the matter with you? Let's go out. Let's go see these people. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. Driven by this need for, you know, affirmation again and positive influence. And um, and because she wasn't doing that, I then, you know, an ex-girlfriend would message me and I'd be like, oh, hi, how are you? Be great to see you, blah, blah, blah. And she found the messages quite rightly, went apoplectic and threw me out of the house. And I, I remember because I was doing another expedition to the North Pole and it was two days before I was going to the North Pole. Um, and when I got back from the North Pole, she came round to my house probably three or four weeks later. She'd been out drinking and well, she isn't in a great state when she drank, drinks. Anyway, she turned up at my flat. I was in a basement flat at one in the morning wearing my dressing gown, smashing on my front door. And I had come back to my house with a girl, another girl in my room. And I remember being there and her smashing on the front door and I couldn't let her in. I couldn't acknowledge that I was in the house, in the flat. And so I sat on the other side of the door with my back to the door. She was on the other side of the door outside screaming, crying. And she fell asleep on the floor of my basement terrace or whatever outside until five in the morning. 
And I just remember looking and then obviously this girl was sort of stood in my door frame of like, what the fuck is this? You know, what is this situation? Who is this bloke that, you know, you know, just, it just, it just that moment in time, I was like, hold on, Ollie, like you've got this image and picture of this loyal, trustworthy, incredible sort of family person that has good values and that you promised and that you, you'd practice and you'd spoken about hours on end with Steve Black in his room constantly over and over and again around like just living and having amazing principles and everything that you're doing is contradicting them everything everything and you've spent the last five years or ten years or whatever blaming everybody else you know ending a relationship oh she was a nutcase or you know it's not you it's me or whatever whatever nonsense I was convincing every myself of at the time you know I had this delusion that just this miraculous incredible right woman would just appear and that would be it done finished don't have to work on anything ever again i'm honest it doesn't work like that it's exactly like it was when i was a 19 year old 20 year old lad like i want to be the best in the world like and as a result i need to be dedicated focused i need to be honest and act with all the best levels of best principles and values and not compromise on anything in pursuit of being the best player in the world well it's the same of being the best person in the world the best dad and whatever it is right and all you're doing is cutting every corner and basically lying to yourself and lying to everybody else and that moment with crying her eyes out on the floor and this girl stood in my door frame and me not having the courage to open the door or talk to the girl that I had in the house just sort of sitting there i was like right you you need to do something about this and so i rang up our players union that we have called the rpa and just said look um, I, I don't know if you've got any support, but I, th- I think I'm in a pretty bad place. I, I, I think I need some help here around me. And because if I don't, if I don't get this help now, I'm going to self-destruct. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to be the person that I want to be or that I aspire to be. And all that's going to happen is I'm going to end up hurting people. And yeah, maybe next time, it's, you know, they will get pregnant. They will go through and three years down the line, I'll cock it up. And then that'll be a proper disaster. You know, that will be the pits for me. That will be, if you like, the, I don't know, is it the antithesis? I don't know what the word, but the total opposite of everything that I've ever aspired and hoped for. And if you like, everything that I ever longed for you know, as a, having experienced it as a kid, you know, now I've got three children of my own and an incredible wife and an incredible family. The one thing that I want now is to, is to be the best possible dad I can be for them. And you know, I, I recognize that in order for me, to, I recognize then if you like, in order for me to achieve that and do that, I needed to do some massive self-reflection and some self-adjustment and reassessment and whatever else. And, that was it. I'm conscious you need to go soon, Ollie. Um, I'm, I'm just so fascinated with what you've been saying. I didn't notice the time. Um, in terms of, I mean, I don't want to at all kind of move so swiftly on from that very uh, raw description, actually, of what you were just talking about. But you have kind of turned your life around. You do have a very happy family life. You have lovely kids, um, beautiful wife, where, 
what's next like where are you going on this kind of new trajectory both work-wise and personally yeah i mean i, I think i'm wrong i don't think it's ever a case of you know life sorted mm-hmm. you know and, and i think you've always got goals aspirations dreams of things you want to achieve and go for right there's nothing what i'm saying is there's nothing wrong with that you know that was that's if you like been a, a cornerstone of my life i think that my drivers or the things that were underpinning it or the things that i was chasing were rotten they they weren't going to bring me the fulfillment that i wanted right they weren't going to give me the outcomes that i desired even though i thought they would and the and the honest truth is that you know they're really attractive for a, a moment right you know, i don't know chatting somebody up and going out and having a shag or whatever out doing something wild and exciting it you know gives your pulses racing it's you know but but if it's done in a if it's dishonest right then it's then at the, at the core of it it's rotten and and as a result the outcome is rotten right you don't ever work towards what it is that you want what you desire and then you need to ask questions about like well actually do i really want this is it that important and if it is okay well then you need to change some stuff or if it isn't okay well then you need to reassess your goals but don't keep pretending like you want to be this incredible family person if really what you want to do is go and have multiple relationships and and, and be aloof and dishonest and whatever else because they're they're not you know they're not um conducive to one another right they're not compatible um yeah it's not going to take you where you want to go and so to, to answer your question like now where I think, you know, like if you like the next decade, 40 to 50, for me, it's about how, how do I, how, how look, like one thing I have recognized in the 40 years I've been on the planet, life is about stories. Life is about experiences. And really that's what my business is about, Optimus Performance, what we've founded it all on, right? It's about creating amazing experiences for people to be able to touch and feel and recognize the values or the behaviors that they want to elicit, right? And the next 40 years, I've got, well, four, including my wife, but three of the most incredible human beings that are going to be dependent on me and my wife for the next 20 years. And I want to create an amazingly safe, but, you know, but challenging, but, you know, supportive and educational environment I can for them, but create some amazing stories and amazing moments and memories that because for for me on a personal level, that is what life is all about. Like I I want to be able to lie down on my deathbed whenever that is and and be able to reflect and be like, God, tell you what, what, what ride, what, what? You know, and equally, whoever sat next, to, hopefully, there's some people sat next to me because I've built some amazing relationships and 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 what have you, and say, you know, do you remember when we did this? Do you remember when we did that? And and, and that, for me, is what makes life exciting and worth living is is that shared experience because um, I I need people, right? I I need them in my life. I need I need as I've already demonstrated throughout the whole thing. And, but, but I need them to be there for all the right reasons and for, for pure reasons. And, um, and so that's, 
yeah, I'm not saying I'm ever going to get it right, and I'm, I'm, yeah, but but that's what I want. That that's the that's the goal. That's the aim and aspiration. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, great question. What would I say to me? I think. Uh, you know what? I don't. I don't regret any of it, because if I hadn't have gone through the experience and went through as a 10 year old, whilst I would never like that for that to have happened, it, it probably wouldn't have given me the drive and determination and focus to go and do what I did from a rugby perspective. Um, now, yes, the drivers and everything underneath it were probably not the right ones, right? Because I was ultimately playing sport because I wanted and needed the affirmation and confirmation and whatever else that we've spoken about but but i'm grateful for that experience i'm grateful for those things that i did in my life i feel like that is an incredible achievement the one that i'll never ever if you like that's a story i'll never ever forget of playing for england i'll be eternally grateful for that um but but, but i would equally have loved for it to be different Know, but but I think one thing I've realised, if you like, in that transition period of in my early 30s of doing some self-reflection, and it took me a long time, it took me two to three years to really wrestle through all this stuff, and you know, some pretty dark, depressive days in the in the middle in the midst of it. But you know what I what it made me really realise and reflect on was that I I can't control anybody else. I can't control their reaction, their sentiment, their behaviours, and ultimately their feedback to me. And whilst that's, you know, I want it to be positive, I became dependent on that. I needed that in order for me to progress and feel validated in life. And what I would tell myself as a younger self is like, just worry about you. Worry about you. Just focus on how you behave, how you react, how you live true to yourself and how you deliver the best version of yourself every single day and if you worry about that and you focus on that you'll never disappoint yourself because ultimately a lot of my drivers would were really driven for probably 10 20 10 15 to 20 years let's say or 10 to 15 years by my whole self-worth being determined by the outcome of what somebody else said so if my dad said the wrong thing, I, it would deflate me immediately. If Blackie said I'm brilliant, well, I'm brilliant. If a coach picked me for the weekend, I'm awesome. If I got selected to be a cap for England, amazing, because somebody else thinks I'm brilliant. But none of it was like, none of it was about, okay, well, uh, okay, cool. You don't want to pick me this weekend. No problem. Like, you know, like I think I should be there. I feel like I'm ready. I'm, I feel great. I'm going to keep working. But, you know, your choice, if you don't want to pick me, that you know, whereas I would get very affected by those sorts of things, by what everybody else thought and what everybody else said, rather than just making it about me. Um, and so that that would be probably the biggest thing that I would, you know, try and, and coach myself. And my final question before you go, what would you give a strapline or a title to your story? Well, I mean, I'd love it, that one for Blackie. The opportunity of a lifetime only exists within the lifetime of the opportunity. But if I were to say anything, just be more Blackie. Oh, 
I love that. <laughs> really love that. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks so much for being so honest and open. I literally was just so fascinated with what you were saying. I really appreciate how you've been able to be really uh, honest and sincere. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm sorry that I've got to dash away early, but you know, let's do it again sometime. Brilliant. Thanks again. Thanks, Enjoy buddy. the rest of your day. Cheers. You too. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. That was such a fascinating conversation and there were so many things that stood out to me, not least how honest and open Ollie has been in his conversation with me and I really genuinely appreciate that. There were a couple of things that perhaps stood out more than others. One was this, this sense of where do we get our validation from? Is it an internal or an external thing? And, and the impact that it can have on us when we're really... Uh, focusing too much on um, seeking external validation and are not able to generate that from within ourselves. And the second thing was really that I would have loved to have met Steve Black. He just sounds an amazing man. His, this podcast episode is named after him. Um, and I loved uh, the sayings that Ollie was sharing with us. He, he really sounded like the, the Yoda of rugby to me. So um, yeah, really appreciate Ollie sort of carrying on that wisdom, I suppose, and sharing the message uh, even after Steve has gone. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Secret Resume. If you did, remember to like, share, comment and subscribe as that helps people like you find people like us.